The title of my sermon is uh, Built for Success. And even if that sounds a little vague, it won't be by the time we get to the end, but I was going to name it uh, A Loving, Worthy Walk. And that comes practically directly out of the passage. And it does present an image of both a healthy Christian and a healthy church. But I chose as I did this built for success because to me the first half of chapter 4, which we're going to be looking at 1 through 16, but the first half of chapter 4 of Ephesians is more about the process to that health than it is being there. So it's more about the building process than the actual completion. And one day, at the second coming of Jesus, the church will be perfected. Until then, it is being built, matured, into the image intended. Paul describes the image as, a, as walking worthy. In verses 1 through 6, Paul is telling us the church, the character, or he's telling us, the, the church, what the character of the build is. In verses 7 through 14, he tells of the tools for the build. And in the last two verses, 15 and 16, he introduces the inclusive apprentices, the apprentice builders, us. Ephesians 4 puts into application the doctrine provided in the first three chapters. So it's been all about what God's been doing, and now it's time to find out what we're supposed to be doing. The doctrine is the foundation for the building. It's now time to start putting up the structure. The structure is the church. All the saints, all the believers in Christ, united in love to God's glory. So let's start by reading the passage. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Not terribly long, but long enough that your choice of standing or not. To get in the perfect light for these eyes that were 50, 15 years ago. <laughs> I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also, but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine." by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love." How do we summarize that? Well, let's try unity, heavenly gifts, and participation are the tools by which Christ builds the success of his church. I'll say that again. Unity, heavenly gifts, and participation are the tools by which Christ builds up the success of his church. Unity, gifts, 
and being part of it is how Christ is building his church. And he doesn't do anything without success. So let's start with those first six verses. Paul telling the church to walk in the unity from which it was built. Ephesians is a six-chapter book. We've studied the first three. Paul didn't write in chapters, but nonetheless, half of his letter, three chapters in our Bible, was spent on all that God did by His glorious grace. And that is Paul's therefore. Only after that explanation is he ready to urge the church to walk rightly, in this case, the Ephesians. And what is the motivation for Ephesians, the Ephesians, or us, to, to walk rightly? Appreciation. The answer is appreciation. I'll claim from experience that effective motivations appeal to emotions. Being told to do something rarely works as being told why, and specifically when the why is emotional. Probably the number one emotional motivation is love. I can't count the number of smart and dumb things I've done for love. Love trumps logic or reason. The heart can overrule the mind. And I don't mean to talk negatively, you know, by saying the dumb things I've done out of love. It's a great motivator when it's done right. If it's done right, it's a good thing that the heart will rule over the mind. And I would suggest that you would add to your morning reading or whenever you're looking through the Bible to spend some time on the Song of Solomon. It is a love book. You will see what love done right looks like. Appreciation, on the other hand, while it's being from the heart, involves the mind in a bigger way. You have to kind of think it through to appreciate things. And Paul is banking on the Ephesians' appreciation of all that God has done to be the motivation for walking rightly. To change their walk from citizens of the world to citizens of heaven. Children of God. Now let's think of the two motivators, love and appreciation, combined, working together. As one commentator put it, we don't walk worthy so God will love us. We, work, walk, we walk worthy because He does love us. It is a matter of gratitude, not out of a desire to earn merit. It's God's love that starts everything. And then Paul goes into these character traits of the church. Um, kind of didn't know this when I went through the character traits of Paul on chapter 3, but they don't overlap in such a way that, that this will become boring. Um, and two weeks from chapter 3, I spent a good amount of time on Paul's character of humility. So I'll focus instead today on gentleness. And gentleness, it may be best described in its negative and that's pushiness. You know, push, gentleness is not pushy. Gentleness overcomes fear. Gentleness is winsome. Have you ever been confronted by a terrified animal, wild or domestic? You approach it, or if you've done it wrong, you'll know this. If you've done it right, it would include gentleness. You, you don't make harsh movements. You try to stay calm. You know, that, that animal is terrified, and you don't need it to be more terrified. So you're being gentle with it. And Paul's combining humility with gentleness. And I'll use that same example of a terrified animal that you have to be calm with, not making the harsh movements, keeping it relaxed. Uh, 
And I'll add the humility. The humility is that terrified animal can hurt you. (laughs) And you need to be afraid of it as it's afraid of you. Even if it's my cat. My cat's not very big, and I'm sure I could kill that cat with the breaking of its neck. But I'm telling you, I am going to be so ripped up in an effort to do so, it's really going to hurt. And I don't want to kill that cat, so it's going to both win the argument, and it's not going to be gentle. Um, But when you bring yourself down to the level of the animal and realize its position, that's when you're going to most appreciate the need to be gentle. And then let's take that to a relationship with one another. If you humble yourself, if you do not consider yourself above the other, then gentleness comes naturally. So humility and gentleness really fit together well. And then it says, with patience. And the King's James Bible translates the Old Greek macrothemia as long-suffering instead of patience. And while I prefer patience, I do like what long-suffering adds in understanding patience. It brings in the attitude of putting yourself in a position that is willing to suffer for the sake of patience. John Chrysostom, he's an early preacher, Constantinople, I forget what century, but first or second. It was that long ago. He defined long-suffering as the spirit that has the power to take revenge but never does. It's long-suffering. It's not putting yourself first. And patience is part of the Christian character that allows things to play out for the good God intends. If we're too quick to discern we have less information to discern with. If we are too quick to write somebody off, we have less people to depend on. And we're not going to find the gems that they offer. I used to work with a guy that was always giving his latest, greatest idea of what we need to be doing. I learned to be patient with Well, I'll call him Jack, but not our Jack, a whole different Jack, a guy I worked with. I wasn't patient with him at first because, well, a couple of reasons. Jack rarely meant we, he usually meant me. And the biggest problem was not that, but that Jack was, he was actually very wrong in his ideas. They weren't good. Most of the time, they were not good ideas. The biggest problem was with all those bad ideas, you would have a tendency to write them off. But with patience, you don't. When Jack wasn't wrong, his idea was either great or was a launching pad for what would become great. They were fantastic ideas. But you had to go through 19 of them to get to the 20th one, which is admittedly frustrating. But as you... As you practice patience, then the 19 isn't so tough. Paul's version of patient is more than just waiting opportunistically for Jack's 20th idea. Paul is asking us, asking for us to have Christ's patience. Big target. If Christ was an eye roller, oh, here comes Kelly. Impatient with mankind, our salvation would still be in the future. Think about that. We would not have salvation if Christ were not patient with us. And you've heard of the expression of the patience of Job. Well, God's grace was infinitely more. Our gratitude of God's patience with us should prompt us to show patience with one another. And then bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another is much like being patient with one another. But the part that needs separate discussion is the last two words before the comma. In love. Bearing with one another isn't simply a confession that we're not always going to get our relationships right. Knowing that we're not going to get them right would cause bearing 
with one another. Something's gone wrong. Somebody said something to offend you or, or said something that you thought was ridiculous. But when you're bearing with one another, that is overlooked. And I think that bearing to be done in love is to do this with more than the gratitude to God or even the love of God. I think in this case it's talking about the love of one another. We're required to love one another. And I do love you guys. And that's not a Greg Gutfeld signing off at the end of the night, I love you America, and I don't think he means it. But I want you to know I mean it when I say that I love you as Christian brothers and sisters. And even if you're not a Christian in this room, I love you and I want Christianism for you. I want Christ to be part of your life as much as he is in mine. And while that love is certainly derived from the love of Christ, it needs to be practiced, on the practical level anyway, of between one another in relationship. And the most important and perhaps most difficult is that it must be real. So it's not a matter of me telling you I love you. I have to show you that I love you. I have to be in front of you. I have to be with you. I have to know what you're going through. And we all have to do that with one another. And then, in a real sense, we can display that love. I said it was derived from Jesus. It is. And it's also nurtured by him. And then I'll move on to eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Your Bible may say endeavor to maintain. Endeavor implies an effort. I think Eager does this well if you really think about it. And remember, these are character traits of a healthy Christian walker. They may be following the example of Christ, but they are made to, to be found in us. We're the ones who need to display them. They're our responsibility to pursue. We aren't just to want the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, we are to eagerly maintain it. And by saying maintain it, it implies a couple of things. It already exists. The unity of the Spirit exists whether you're participating or not. Our job is to maintain something that already exists. The other thing to notice about maintenance, it's very rare, not very rare, but it is somewhat rare, uh, for the inventor to be the one who maintains. I don't know who put my car together, but I'm the one who has to maintain the thing, change the oil, <laughs> add gas. No, not gas, I have a diesel. So it was created by God, and we are to be the maintainers of it. Another point to address would be that what unity is not. One might wonder why there are so many denominations if we're supposed to be maintaining unity. Why aren't we all just one? And we can look at this church, Redemption Hill, to answer that. To be united in our church is not to be clones of each other, all believing everything in only one way. Instead, we have topics that are open to discussion. We have differences, different gifts, and we'll talk about those gifts a little bit later. Simplifying it even more, the biblical view is that of 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14. Let me take a look, and it, it's familiar to, to our passage as well. 1 Corinthians 12, starting with verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And it goes on to explain feet and eyes and, and arms. Well, to be thinking about that and denominations. I'm not saying that 
that this isn't saying that each of you is one part of a body. You are. But you can apply the same sort of logic to all these denominations, all these with differences that still make up a unity in spirit. In parentheses, or take note, there may be denominations outside of the unity of the spirit. And if there are, and I say there are, there are, they'd have to be reclassified as cults, not denominations. And I'm not going to go and attack anybody, so you've got to find out who they are. Uh, and the last thing I'll mention about this unity is that it is a spiritual unity. That it is one that is not divided by nationality, ethnicity, social or cultural class, or any worldly thing does not divide spiritual unity. Those worldly divisions are united in spirit in Christ's church. So while they're divided in the world, they are not divided in heaven. And I can't imagine how frustrating it would be as the head of a church, Jesus Christ, to see partiality in his church. James 2, 1 through 5, clearly admonishes it. In fact, let me read it. A few pages over to James 2, 1 through 5. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold, excuse me, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Only criteria. Love God. All other differences are not. So with the character of believers defined, Paul proceeds to give us a three-verse description of unity. One could even think of those verses, four through six, as an argument for unity. One body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Paul makes it clear that that first part, one body and one spirit, is referring to the uniting of the Jews and Gentiles that we saw in those first three chapters. It's essentially his, his argument for the calling of the Gentiles. The rest of the list of ones, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, God, Father, are common areas to the Christian greater than any potential differences. And then we move into our second division, and that is the gifts of Christ. Christ supplies the gifts needed to build the unity. We have the model of the Christian walk, heavenly character designed for unity. The first three chapters gave us a foundation of unity. The character verses gave us a blueprint or a plan of our unity building. Those last three verses, 4, 5, and 6, gave us the model or picture of this building so we can see it. And to avoid mixing metaphors, we now need a builder to build it. Fortunately, we have a foreman totally qualified to do this. Anybody want to guess who that is? Sunday school answer? Jesus. Absolutely. I don't know if those below Jesus should be metaphorized as workers or tools. I'll kind of let you work that out. According to this passage, the, the tools or workers are gifts of Jesus. He finishes his unity oneness, Paul does, and then says, but. 
after mentioning that the unity is orchestrated through our sovereign God, he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. He is not saying there are those in unity and there are those in gift. No, he's still speaking inside of the unity and that we're going to have different gifts. As I was saying earlier, even in unity we have differences. They're heavenly appointed, given freely by grace, issued by Christ, but we have differences in the gifts. Gifts are by grace, and we have no room to feel slighted that one person has a gift that another doesn't. Nor should we be upset when somebody has a gift that the level seems much higher than somebody that was granted the same gift. These are God's choices. God does what God does. We don't get to say that doesn't seem fair. It is what God does. But there's our part. Rather than worrying about what he does, we need to worry about what do we do with what he does? How do we use the gifts? I wonder how many times someone blessed with a greater gift hardly uses it, and one with a lesser level of the gift, of the same gift, uses it to the fullness of how it was given. Therefore, the lesser gift ends up with a larger impact. So regardless of the level of your gift, regardless of the gift, when you use it, it's a great gift. It's what God intended. You will achieve what God intends. And then verse 8 is Paul referencing Scripture, specifically Psalm 68, 18, to make his point about Christ being the one who doles out the gifts. Oops, I'm still in James. <laughs> when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to men. That little bit about um, leading a host of captives is not a bunch of people that are now his slaves that he is leading up to heaven. We are his slaves, but it is more about a conquering king who is bringing, who had been enslaved, back home, back to freedom. It's a great image of what's going on with Christ and us. But then Paul, my Bible in parentheses, makes this parenthetical sidebar um, that has... A lot of meaning, and I, I'll confess it's not exactly clear to me. And give me a couple minutes to consider the options. According to Paul, ascended logically assumes he descended. And I don't have any problem with that part of the logic. That's, that's easy on me. Um, I will mention that it, it confirms to me that Christ's life did not start when he was born of the Virgin Mary. He descended to that position. He existed before that. So there's a nice little reference to his existence prior to his uh, coming to earth. Like I say, I don't have a problem with that. But here's where it gets complicated. He had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. King James reads the lower parts of the earth. So one is lower regions, comma, the earth, and it's, it's not quite half and half, but it's pretty close. When I went into the internet and Blue Letter Bible and looked up all the different versions of this passage, half of them like to put a comma in there and half of them like to say lower regions of the earth. Lower regions of the earth would be claiming Hades, hell. And... I read a lot of commentaries trying to land on this thing, and I couldn't. I mean, they, they, they both make their arguments. 
I don't think any of them made really great arguments. So I'd classify this as kind of one of those mysteries. You may argue with it, but I don't mean I'm afraid to make a stand on it. Where I land is with the comma. That Christ descended to lower regions, lower than heaven, to the earth. And that's as far as I go. I don't have him descending even further down. And my excuse is, is weaker than what all those commentaries said. I'm looking at the whole passage. And it says that he ascended higher than heaven. So I don't think he's talking about how high can I jump? How high can Christ ascend? I think he's shifting it in a hyperbole. He's exaggerating. He is not exaggerating, but he's, he's really drawing attention to where Christ ascended. And he's talking about, and again in my mind, that he's, he, his position of where he ascended to, to rule over all of heaven and earth. So it's a positional. And then I think when you take Paul's writing and think in those terms, the same hyperbole can belong to descending below heaven, but you don't have to go all the way to Hades. You just, it's below heaven. It's earth. It's where we walk. That's where I landed. And if you land elsewhere, good for you. I'm ready to listen to your arguments, and I could even be swayed by your evidence. I'm not dying on that hill. So Paul returned to talking about the gifts so let me do the same. Verse 11. What gift did Jesus give? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So could we have a double gift going on here? The gift being people. I think of spiritual gifts. But he listed Positions, if not people. But those people needed gifts to perform their ministry. And that's that double giving. He's given us the people, and then he's given those people the gifts required for their ministry. And verse 12, why did he give them? To equip us for the work of ministry. Meaning the building up of the body. And what we learn from the group is to be paid forward. What we learn from those prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, what we learn from them, we're supposed to use for the building up of the body. Pay it forward. And then verse 13, when will we know when we're done? When full unity and faith in Jesus in his complete fullness is attained. I guess that's another way of saying no time soon. But I can't even say that. You can't say that with God. He's on his own timing. There's nothing that he chooses to do that he can't do. It could be before the sermon's over. Highly unlikely. But definitely, there's a lot of work to do. So if Jesus doesn't come here in the next 10 minutes, you've got an assignment for the next 10 minutes of building up that body. Verse 14. Are there any other advantages to the gifts? Our maturity will also bring confidence in Scripture so as not to be swayed by false doctrine. My favorite Jews of the Bible, Bible are the Bereans, based on what Paul said of them in Acts 17. Acts 17, 11 to be specific. He tells us that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. If you're going to study a passage, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, you don't have to stick to just Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. You can verify things that Paul, spiritually guided, spirit guided, what if he got it wrong? Well, he didn't. The Bible's not wrong. What if he's intending this, but Kelly is saying this? Use other scripture. Test me. Test whoever you're listening to. Test yourself by the use 
of searching the scriptures. And then we move to uh, the last two verses, 15 and 16. And they're saying that we are called to be mature and we're supposed to participate, to be loving members of a built-up body. These last two verses is, are, is the application of everything that goes before it. To go back to the building metaphor, the house is built and it's time to move in. As everybody who's experienced move-in day, it's not the end of a story. It's the beginning. It's Paul's rather. Rather than being tossed to and fro by the waves of false doctrine, rather than a wall of division, rather than the ways of the world, Jesus gives us a new way, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is there to facilitate building up the church as one body, a body of many parts, and each part equipped to do its part in building itself up in love. That was a mind blower for me. Christ has always had the job of doing the work. Christ does not remove himself from this, but he wants the body to build itself up. Be As an individual, I'm going to start running. I'm not. I'd lose weight and I can't have that. But I could build up my body. I've done it before when I was much younger. And it, it takes my effort. I had to go hit the gym. I had to start pumping iron. And get myself, I used to weigh like, I think at the time it was 150 pounds. And I worked myself all the way up to 190. Uh, that was great. And I stopped working out and quickly went back down. And now I'm there again. <laughs> and beyond, I'll, I'll confess. And I did it. It's my fault. But there is this notion of building up the body of our work doing it. We're doing it in Christ, and we're doing it in love, and we are doing it. I've got a little different application than what I would consider normal. Normally, an application points to what change has to happen. What am I going to do differently having heard this? The, the passage, reading the passage. What am I going to get out of this passage? What I'm going to do a little different is saying, what have we done? What have we got out of this passage? We are a church. Are we walking rightly? And my pride is in all you all. Not just y'all. All y'all. That means everybody in Texas. So everybody in this church, everybody in the community that supports this church is who I'm talking about. It's larger than redemption. But it's not so large that we don't know who's involved. It's the community that includes us that follow Jesus and it includes those in our community that belong to other churches that are working to the building up of the body. There was a, what many would call a crisis that happened in this church. And I say it's a supposed crisis because I don't think it was. This supposed crisis happened back in the spring regarding the health of our pastor, Tim Swanson. And it was about the impact on him, his family, his church, his community, all those he has influence on. And, and when I say his church, I don't mean the church belonged to him. That's not biblical. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. Tim belongs to the church. It's his church because he belongs to it, as do all of you, as do I. The oversimplified background, if, if you don't know, maybe you're visiting us or you just want to hear it again, 
is that due to his health, Tim was not able to directly pastor Redemption Hill Church. And Tim performed a lot of functions in pastoring this church. They included preaching, teaching, evangelizing, sound familiar, verse 11, and many more. He came along other, alongside other pastors as they had needs in this local community because he cared about them as well. He was intentional in maturing people into positions of unity, or of ministry, which is also in unity. And I could go on and on about his, the assignments or the roles that Tim took on, but there were a lot of them. Then, Tim was suddenly absent. He couldn't come. And it was due to his health. He had the desire to be here, but he couldn't be here with us. But I said it was what most would call a crisis, implying that we can't call it a crisis. We shouldn't call it a crisis. And the pride that I have in you all is that you didn't consider it a crisis. Yeah, it was difficult. I think in the heart of this passage, in Jesus building his church for his success, is that he knows trouble will come. He allows it. The most excellent character of the church is designed to deal with the problems. Not to deal with when everything's going grand. And when everything's going grand, we could point to Jesus for that. And when things are not going grand, we look at the character of the church. The way Christ built his church. The gifts, his power, those trials that we're going to overcome. Our church has been showing her character. That's what I'm witnessing. I think maybe you guys will too as I go through some of the ways that we've done this. Our people put humility on display. Prayer is a clear picture of humility. It's giving up our abilities to do anything and turning them over to God. Humbly submitting that God can do this better. And we do that well. Prayer wasn't something we did for a few weeks early in Tim's journey, and then it tapered off. If anything, it grew in frequency and intensity, and I watched it. I participated in it, and don't think others didn't notice. I have taken several texts, several emails, and several phone calls saying, wow, you guys are different. That was fantastic. I think they were trying to say that redemption showed a maturity, one they're not used to. We showed a level of understanding in how we prayed and who we prayed with, what we prayed for. Whether you were praying with Tim or for Tim, so many times I heard the clear message of God being glorified in those prayers. God, if you can take this disaster of health that Tim is going through, we want you to be glorified in his healing. And that happened over and over. That's walking rightly. Our relationships with one another currently going on included Paul's list. Gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity. Personally, I've been the recipient of a number of those. Patience is probably the number one. Back before I retired, so prior to the end of May, we had um, membership classes. And at the end of those membership classes, we promised that we would be interviewing those people and finalizing the process of membership. And I'm responsible to do those interviews. Tim's not able right now. And you guys have shown such patience with me. It, it's unbelievable. Nobody has come to me and said, yeah, but you said. Maybe thinking of it. And thinking of it is totally different than acting on what you're thinking. 
probably even more impressive that you don't act on what you're thinking when you're thinking it. Then you're showing that patience. Then you're bearing up with one another. Our church knows that I'm not a trained preacher. And our church forgives me for that. You guys listen to the important parts of what I say and you're willing to just overlook the errors. And I'm totally good with that. Uh, I, I, I need that out of y'all. I keep going Texas here. From all of you. Um, That's not all, though. I mean, those are things that I've witnessed in you. I think if you try hard, you can think back to various times where you guys did show a unity, where you guys were walking so right. The um, Bible Adventure Week. You know, we hadn't had one because of COVID for a few years. And it was put to me in the position of an elder whether we should do another one. And I, you know, mentally went through, we don't have the people power. I mean, people that were instrumental in pulling off BAW weren't around. I mean, Tim wasn't around. Elisa wasn't around. Linda and I couldn't participate. There's just, and, and others. It was gonna be really hard to pull that off. And it was put to me, it's like, well, we've got these positions covered and we need these half a dozen more. So if we could put up a, a sign-up sheet and you could announce it from the pulpit that uh, we are considering uh, doing the BAW. Um, Tim is behind it, I'm behind it, but we don't necessarily have the people. But if you'll put your name on that sheet and we get enough names, then I'll, I'll certainly consider whether we can go forward. I was looking for a half a dozen people. I don't remember the exact number, but it was about quadruple that. That's how you guys responded. And you responded to support the community. That's what BAW is, Bible Adventure Week, a Vacation Bible School, if you want to call it that. That, that was walking right, man. That, that was really impressive. And you can go on and on with this church and those sorts of things. Other big deals in this period of Tim's absence, without any detail, not really, were the guest preachers that came in from the community. Special mention to Rick Oliver, who loves this church and who has been here for five or six sermons during that time, including an entire series that he put together. Adam Peacock, Jeff Marshall, these guys don't belong to this church. These guys belong to the community that this church is in. These guys were walking right. I love these guys for that. And not only did they visit to preach, prior to and since then and right up until today, they're supporting our church. Rick Oliver constantly asking, not how's Tim doing? He's asking me, how's the church doing? Is there anything I can do to help support you guys? And yeah, I'm leaning on him. I'm leaning on him for how I'm looking at passages. I'm leaning on him to help preach. Just leaning on his experience because I know that he is a, a very worthy walking Christian man. That's the outsiders. <clears throat> and I could do a thank you speech that would be seen in the Oscars where I start naming all the people in this church and all the things they've done. And that list is too long. But bigger than that list being too long is the people on it. They're not looking to be named. They want Christ to get the glory. I think I know the character of every one of them and that's why I'm not going to name person by person who they are. They were all guided by Christ. They know it, I know it. And that is so satisfying. I do want to specifically thank, not people, but all those who have participated in our church ministries. 
sound teams, video teams, administrative, children's church, youth ministry, and the youth that outside of the ministry have been participating so much in this church. That is really exciting. Hospitality, participants in meal deliveries, workers for the food bank distribution, classroom construction workers, worship teams, in-house preachers, special event kitchen workers. It goes on and on. I, I can't name them all. There's, it's, it's such an extensive list. And if you look around you, it's like, well, who's doing those things? There's not enough people in this building to pull all those off. And it's because so many of you are not double-dipping, you're triple, quadruple-dipping. You're, you're going beyond and participating in a multitude of ministries because you care to build up the body of this church. Truly, though, the power of Christ enabled the success of everybody on that list to illuminate His magnificent glory. That's what it's about. Christ is illuminating His glory through you. And I am so thankful that you were all participating. So pray with me. <clears throat> Lord, continue to use this church to your magnificent glory. We are humbled by your call of us to your church. We desire your strength and power in our loving relationships with one another. As we mature and attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we ask that you bless us with your people and gifts that will maintain our walk. We pray for generations that follow to be greater than those that proceed, each built on the same foundation of the gospel as known by your word and spirit. Bless this church for the unity that we have been faithful to. Be glorified in all ways forever and ever. Amen.